So we're on to lesson nine in the Just As series. And I'm paraphrasing. Just as the Father is in me, and I am in and I am in him, so you, my disciples, must be united. We get that paraphrase from John chapter 17, verses 20 to 23. I'll say it again. Just as the Father is in me, and I am in him, so you, my disciples, must be united. And, um, of course, the Lord wasn't addressing his disciples in, in, the, uh, in the text. He was praying for his disciples, so addressing his Father. I was just chatting with Tony to make sure that I was about to tell the truth, but I think I am, that um, a few times we've sat on the runway in Kalimio Airport, uh, just on the border of the Chin Hills, and we're sitting on a, being generous, a 1980s, maybe, maybe 60s, maybe 70s, um, topple of Myanmar Airways jet, waiting to take off. And you're looking through the, the window observing the engine <laughs> and then you're looking at the seat and the stuffing's falling out the seat and the, the table doesn't close properly because the catch is broke. And you're kind of thinking, hmm, I wonder do they have the right maintenance standards <laughs> um, to be legal with this or at least to be safe. When you buy a litre of petrol uh, from a forecourt, how do you know the pump? has delivered you the liter. Boris Johnson and his team issuing edicts from 10 Downing Street demanding 100% compliance with lockdown rules or face the consequences. Um, while straight after the press conference they retire to a back room for an illicit birthday party. A culture of do as I say, not as I do supposedly policed by something called the Commons Select Committee on Standards of Behaviour in Parliament. Most recently, descending the 4,000 metres to the Atlantic seabed to explore the wreck of the Titanic on a vessel which, so they say, the design team had fired the health and safety advisor because his inflexible approach was stifling the company's vision for paying passenger exploration. <coughs> Can we trust that report? Um, was due diligence applied to its authenticity before the press went public with it? And what will the press standards authority have to say about such a statement? My point is, everywhere we look, there are standards. These are published rules that are designed um, to ensure safety for the most part but also to ensure integrity and to ensure quality and we've been considering in the last eight sessions a standard and it's a standard that the Lord Jesus issued to his disciples using this expression just as because, of course, a standard is comparing some kind of practice or policy with uh, what's um, prescribed as acceptable. 
we have thought just as, and these are paraphrased, they're not exactly as they were presented, but we've thought of just as the Father raises the dead, so the Son gives life. It's just as the Father sent me, so I send you. Just as the Father knows me, so I know you. Just as the Father has instructed me, so I instruct you. Just as I did for you, so you do for each other. Just as I have loved you, so you must love each other. Just as I have loved the Father and kept his commands, so you must love me and keep my commands. Just as I am not of this world, so neither are you of this world. And our final one today, just as the Father is in me and I am in him, so you, my disciples, must be united. It's the Lord Jesus setting what I would call a biblical benchmark. He's setting the standard and it is very high. And he's setting it for um, the kind of behaviour and aspiration that he expects from his disciples. And today, our focus is the standard of unity. The unity that he expects to exist between um, disciples serving him. Let's turn to John 17. We won't read the whole prayer, although that would be a good thing, because uh, you kind of get a sense of order and context. But for the sake of the time we have, we'll go into verse 20, which is uh, the key section, verse 20 to 23. Jesus says, my prayer is not for them alone, that's his apostles. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May, be, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved me even as, and have loved them even as you have loved me. And then just uh, go back to verse 10, still in the prayer. This time it's the section that is focused on his apostles, but we get a very similar statement, request made. Verse 10, all I have is yours and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them, that's the apostles. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one, as we are one. It's a really uh, important subject for us to get our heads around because it's a, a signature subject for the churches of God today. And I would suggest it's, it's a signature subject for the churches of God since they ever existed. It's our mantra. You go on the website and it's um, the churches of God that they may be one, which is taken from John 17, verse 11. It makes us distinctive. It, it makes us 
Our aspiration to be united makes us stand out. I find it often very tempting to go on YouTube and Google what men of God better than me might have to say <coughs> on certain subjects. And uh, I, I've done that uh, on this one after I'd made the bulk of my preparation. And it's astounding. There, there seems to be some kind of blind spot, which for me and, and for you, as we look at John 17, it just seems so obvious. And yet, um, as I say, men way more capable than me seem to dance around the issue and try and spin it some other way because they think unity amongst disciples of the Lord Jesus is just beyond anybody's reach. First of all, a, a little bit of a, a tangent. The delight in praying together. We have um, the Lord Jesus in the upper room with his disciples and John, remember John is presenting a case that supports the um, contention that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing in him we might have eternal life in his name and part of that case is to present in detail guided by the Holy Spirit the content of this prayer that the Lord Jesus made that the disciples were in earshot of an amazing thing you know I suppose we could argue that as disciples of the Lord Jesus, the most intimate spiritual experience we have is to pray together. Because what happens when we pray together is we get to hear what's on our brother or our sister's heart. And if we're sincere, then we get to hear what the burden is that the Holy Spirit has put on our hearts in order that we uh, bring it to the throne of grace. And we know that because... It's part of the Holy Spirit to help us in our prayers. So approaching the throne of God appropriately means we're handing over our thoughts and our imagination and our aspirations to the Holy Spirit. And what we pray is prompted by him. And I, I put it to you that that's what was going on in John 17. And the disciples had this amazing privilege of seeing a window into the soul of the Lord Jesus and uh, listening to what he had to say. And what he had to say is truly amazing. If we'd had time to look at the prayer in its entirety, I would point to three things. It's timing. When did it take place? It's subject. Who was Jesus praying for? And its object, what was he praying? The timing is, well, it's just stupendous. He's spent time with his disciples, something that he, Luke tells us, he really was looking forward to. And um, he'd established the remembrance and told them that's what he wanted them to do. And that was all in anticipation of what was coming next, of course, which would be his um, arrest in Gethsemane after Judas had betrayed him and um, taken to that mock trial and then 
taken to be crucified and all of the horror that that would entail. But more than that, he was anticipating the fulfilment of the purposes of God in saving mankind by him becoming the sin offering for us. It's in that context that we get to see what had bubbled up to the surface in the soul, in the mind of the Lord Jesus through his prayer. And there are three subjects of the prayer. The first is himself. He was praying for himself. It was all about glory being restored. And then he was praying for his apostles who were around him. And then, amazingly, he was praying for me and you because um, we are those who have believed because of their message. And uh, we might ask ourselves the question, if I was the object of his prayer, which I was, then what was the subject of his prayer? Sorry, I was the subject of his prayer. What was the object? Often we, we kind of loosely say, I'll pray for you. It's a bit meaningless, really, um, because for me to pray for you, there has to be some kind of uh, object in the prayer. What is it I pray? What is it you want me to pray about for you? And with this timing, with me and you being the subject of his prayer, the object of his prayer, what we discover is his passion for unity. He could have prayed for so many other things about me and you. But the thing that had bubbled up to the surface in his soul, as he put it out, poured it out before God, was his desire that we might be united. We being disciples of his who would believe because of the message of the apostles, if you like, following the apostles' teaching. What is unity? Let's consider um, a huge topic in a few seconds. And it's the unity of the Godhead. First of all, it's why God is three persons. If he was one, then kind of unity becomes a bit of a farce, as does love. Unity and love require more than one. It requires relationships and harmony. Um, and, and he talks about it regularly. I and the Father are one. He didn't mean to say that they were one person. It meant that they were united. That's in John 10. He who has seen me, he said, has seen the Father. It's been said many times, I'll say it again, that unity is not uniformity. It's not people being the same. Um, and actually, unity is best demonstrated by diversity. It's a very trendy word these days. But uh, we get it from the teaching of, uh, about the church, the body, in the New Testament, where you have amazing diversity, people coming from different backgrounds and different cultures, and they're drawn together, and they are gifted differently, and um, they're able to serve collaboratively. Is that the right word? Um, and the diversity, uh, coupled with unity, makes them amazingly productive. That's the theory, at least. 
You know, I was going to dress you all at the beginning as Manchester United because that's what we are in some ways. But you get the illustration there. You know, if everyone was a goalie, and I know nothing about football, but I can imagine that if everyone was a goalie, it would be a pretty rubbish team. So you've got this blend of different positions and different skills, and unitedly they accomplish amazing things sometimes. I was really quite... Um, taken up really by Giles's talk it's a few sessions ago when he was talking about uh, the Trinity complex complex subject but he talked about um, equality but dependence and I'd never heard that before that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit they have different functions in the Godhead and they're dependent on each other we can say that in a reverent way. Uh, and it's not about inferiority or superiority. It's about equality. And that transfers to many other things, like marriage, for example. <coughs> People get bent out of shape because somehow, if we're not careful, we think of subjection as implying that um, one or other is superior uh, or inferior. And it's not the case. It's different functions mean... The couple are dependent on each other and you have that wonderful uh, equality. So unity is not uniformity. It's not about us all being the same. In fact, we need to celebrate diversity. But it's, uh, it's about um, growing and serving together. Um, forgive a, a horticultural illustration <laughs> that you may have heard me use before. Um, Joyce certainly has heard it because it comes from, uh, we learned it at the footer gym, who was a, a gardener. Uh, when I was a kid, and I'm talking eight or nine years old, in the summer holidays, part of my delight was to go to work with my dad, which was just around the corner in the park. And we do what's called pricking out. And that involved getting a tray of seedlings, so he'd sowed the seeds, and you just get like a like a carpet of plants and they're all kind of tied together as they've all grown up together and pricking out is is grabbing one and isolating it and then planting it independently in its own little pot and um, we used to do thousands of these geraniums that would go into flower beds and stuff I think they were geraniums um, and then you know you'd, you'd come back uh, maybe a month later and you'd see how the plants had flourished. And I, I can remember Jim using this as an illustration. You'd kind of look and you'd see this on a bench, maybe a few hundred geraniums, and they'd all be flourishing, but you'd look at one, and it, it just seemed to be dominant because it was somehow stronger and more healthy than the others, and it stood out. And you'd, you'd go and make a, a further exploration, and you'd discover that Silly Steve had had pricked out two plants instead of one and planted them together. And as a consequence, they'd grown together kind of in super harmony. And um, I think they call it synergy, don't they? Where the sum of the, the parts is, is greater than they would have been individually. All illustrations of, of deity are weak and fail. And that one will fail if you think about it too much. But that's the, the aspiration that the Lord Jesus had for his disciples was such would be the 
connection uh, with himself, just as his, the, the relationship between him and his father was so connected that they would flourish together. As I say, perhaps a weak illustration, but something for us to think about. But let's get back to the content of John 17, verse 20 to 23. We've talked about the timing. We've talked about the subject. Let's think about the object of Jesus' prayer, which was that they may be one. It says in verse 11, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. The Lord Jesus had a sensitivity for the need for his, in this case it was his apostles, to be protected in order that they may be united. <coughs> Why would they need protecting? Because Satan was after dismantling any potential unity that they had. Such was the importance of this characteristic of his disciples to the Lord Jesus that he begins his, um, the object of his prayer that um, they would be protected. And that tells me that unity is not something, that the kind of unity that the Lord Jesus was asking God about was not something that was a given. Now, sometimes we, we might think that any unity that's mentioned in Scripture is the unity of the church, the body, uh, because that's perfect. The Lord Jesus is building that, and it's uh, eternal. And um, we ultimately are united together in that as disciples of the Lord Jesus. But why would the Lord Jesus pray for the protection of the apostles in order that unity might be preserved if it didn't need praying for so he was clearly praying for something else. And it's not the unity of the body of Christ which is perfect um, when, it, when the body is complete. But he was praying for the unity of his disciples this side of eternity when they would be the target of Satan. <coughs> that they may be one, that's our uh, mantra, verse 21, uh, verse 11 and verse 21, that they may be one. One of the people I, I looked up in terms of uh, what they say hu uh, unity is was my, one of my spiritual heroes, Selwyn Hughes. And he says, unity is the bond that exists between one person and another in which they know that the things that unite them are deeper and more important than the things that might separate them. Selwyn, I'm so disappointed in you because that's not the benchmark, the Bible benchmark that the Lord Jesus was setting. It's, it, it's, it's just so full of compromise. We kind of think about the things we agree on and count them. We think about the things that we disagree on and accept we're going to disagree on things and then say, well, so long as that pile is bigger and more important than that pile, then that's unity. I'm sorry, that's not what, what I see at all. Um, the benchmark is that they may be one as we are one. It's inconceivable that there is any sense of compromise in the unity that is between the Father and the Son. So what is, um, how can we define the unity that the Lord Jesus was talking about? And of course it's 
it's based on truth. It's based on the apostles' teaching. It's based on scripture. And in verse 17 of uh, John 17, we have um, that statement that um, the disciples were to be sanctified by truth. Your word is truth. So the benchmark is set by the unity that exists between the Father and the Son. Um, and we learn about it. We learn about the application of it and the practice of it through the word of God, which is truth. So Selwyn, the objective here isn't to explore and accept that we disagree on things, but it's to identify the truth in God's word. And if there is a conflict, then resolve the conflict. And that often takes subjection, which of course is part of what happens in a, a human unity relationship. Also in verse 21, that the world may believe the um, effect of disciples serving in unity together is a brilliant testimony. And sadly, when I looked up what some eminent brothers in Christ say, th there's a celebration of differences that are accepted as differences and just left. It's like we can, we can get on with each other despite the differences. Well, again, it's what kind of testimony is that? Um, it, it suggests that it's okay to, to believe that there is inconsistencies in Scripture. There's only one truth. There's only one right interpretation. And um, it requires deep investigation. It requires spirit-led, requires spirit-led revelation. And it requires um, subjection uh, at some point. It's a bold statement coming, but do those things characterize the churches of God today? Um, big question, to what extent is the prayer of the Lord in John 17 about those who would believe because of the apostles' message, to what extent is that fulfilled in the churches of God today? What I would say is God is the judge of that, isn't he? He knows what's in our hearts. And I know, because I'm part of it, how important this is. You know, we, we, we ditch unity and there is no churches of God. It's what we stand for because it's what the Lord Jesus was passionate about. And sometimes it's really hard uh, because there are differences of opinion. And sometimes it's hard even to, to resolve scripture. But there is that... Um, determination and intrinsic belief in our constitution that unity is um, is up there in terms of a really important aspiration that the Lord Jesus has for us needs to be a testimony and I think it is I think anyone who might investigate uh, the churches of God from the outside would demonstrate would learn that this is a an organization that's global and that is committed to being united in the doctrine and in their practice. Verse 22, it says, um, I have given them the glory that you gave me, 
that they may be one as we are one. I was really interested in Stephen Hickling's presentation last night. In fact, I took a load of notes because it's so, this is almost like an extension of what he was saying. And he was equating the glory of the Lord Jesus as talked about in, in John 17. Fundamentally, it goes back to um, love. And his love was demonstrated ultimately at Calvary. And of course, that was happening because of his obedience uh, to his father. And the obedience to the father was the outworking of the unity. So you have this love, obedience, unity. There are a sequence of things that's going in reverse that we see. And that's the glory of the Lord Jesus. And he demonstrated that in his um, life. Verse 23. Uh, I in them and you in me, may, be, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you've sent me. There's a a work in progress element going on in here that he was praying that there would be a progressiveness um, about unity. Put it to you that that wasn't a progressiveness in terms of ever increasing depth of revelation. Uh, I don't think so. I think it was more um, progression in terms of um, more and more people being added. So that, which is the case of course, as the years have gone by, so um, more and more people have engaged in following the Lord Jesus according to his pattern, according to the pattern for New Testament churches. And as a consequence, there has been that progression. Um, so, super subject that the Lord Jesus had a great deal of passion about in one of the most, well, the most crucial time in his, old, in his whole ministry. And here he is praying that it might be the case and he's praying for us, those who have believed because of his message, because of the message of the apostles. I just wanted to give Paul the last word in Philippians 2 verse 1. It says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. There's our mantra for being one as the Lord Jesus and the Father are one.